All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Oh, man. So today is it. Today is today's the day. I, I don't even acknowledge it that often. I guess I do. But uh, I, 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 okay. I'm 55 years old today. This is my birthday, people. It is my birthday. I'm telling you, because I don't necessarily think you should know. I don't necessarily, uh, I don't parade my birthday around. I'm not ashamed of it any, in any way, but uh, on some level, I have made it this far, so I should let you know. Today is my birthday. Thursday, September 27th is my 55th birthday. I was born... In 1963, on Kol Nidra Eve, that's how everything has changed. I mean, I don't know what happens with calendars, but I was born the night that Jews around the world were repenting for their sins and fasting into the next day, and I came out crying with a slight eating disorder. I'm happy to be uh, to be 55. I am happy to be alive. I'm happy that things. Have worked out for me personally so far. I'm unhappy with the state of the world, but uh, who isn't? What happens on your birthday? I'm sure my mother will text and do her usual leaving a uh, voicemail of her singing happy birthday, which is uh, both sweet and uh, uh, a a little off key, but it's not her job to be a professional singer. We'll see what happens. A couple of things I want to tell you about. First... Uh, before I get away from myself here and start talking about me, I'd like to say that my guest is uh, Gail Ann Hurd, a, a film producer, a TV producer. Uh, she's uh, produced like you know amazing blockbuster movies: The Terminator, The Abyss, uh, Aliens, Armageddon. She's a producer of The Walking Dead, but I, I she's here today. Uh, I I got an opportunity to talk to her, and I'm like, I don't talk to many producers. And this should be pretty interesting. So that's happening. That's going to happen for all of us. I will be performing in Los Angeles at a small venue, October, I believe, uh, 4th. That's a Thursday at 8 o'clock. And Saturday, October 6th at 10 o'clock p.m. This is a Dynasty typewriter. Uh, it's down in Koreatown, and it's uh, it's supposedly a great little theater. I miss uh, the Steve Allen Theater, which is no longer with us, where I could work out stuff. But uh, So I'm going to do a couple of uh, fairly tight evenings of riffage. Uh, yeah, I've, I've certainly zeroed in on the hour 15 or so that I'm working on as the new material, but, uh, but it's always good to work out in a small room. So if you want to come to that, I, I don't know if it's sold out. I don't think it is. That's Dynasty Typewriter here in Los Angeles. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for the link for those tickets. So that's a bit of business. I, uh, also, October 13th in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm sorry I'm not doing a second show. Uh, New York Comedy Festival, November 10th in New York City at the Beacon uh, is selling well. There are some tickets left. I would get them if you're interested in going to that in New York. Also, another heads up for New York people. This is not my show, but I think it is a show that would be worth going to uh, in a lot of ways you know, for, for several different reasons. It sounds tremendous. It's tomorrow, actually. So you got to go get tickets or you got to show up and go. Uh, it's tomorrow, September 28th 
It's at the uh, Knockdown Center in Queens. It's called Flip These Houses. It's a concert celebrating songs of protest and political consciousness. But but this is sort of like astounding. These are great old folk songs and, and also modern songs. I, you know, I have a I have a song list. I don't need to go through that with you. I should just be able to tell you the artists that are going to be doing Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, you know, Marvin Gaye. Even there's I, there's just a lot of different songs that are being covered uh, by Craig Finn, Britt Daniel, Nicole Atkins, Ted Leo, Laura Cantrell are a few of the performers. Uh, they're uh, as I said before, they're going to be doing songs by Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, David Bowie, Nina Simone, dozens more. The goal is to support Get Out the Vote campaigns with proceeds going to Power the Polls, the Hometown Project, Rise and Resist, and the Center for Popular Democracy. Go to flipthesehouses.org for tickets. Again, this is at the Knockdown Center in Queens tomorrow night, Friday, September 28th. It should be a a pretty amazing show. I, I think a lot of people may not even be conscious of some of the amazing songs that happened way back in the day. Sounds like a nice day, nice evening. Go see it. I think I told you some some of you guys. Oh, I've been I've been going to doctors a bit, not because I'm losing my mind, just because uh, you know you go get a checkup. And I've had this I've had this thing on my head, and uh, and I think I, I reflected on some oddball late stage. George Carlin bit where he talks about just noticing a bump on your head. Well, it happened to me. It happened, and I was playing with it, and I was hitting it with my comb, and of course, I was nervous about it. When a bump arises, you want to get it dealt with. Don't let your bump sit. Okay, folks, if I can say anything today, it's uh, don't let the bump sit and fester. Don't wait till the bump gets bigger. If a bump uh, is there and a bump wasn't there before, and you know it not to be a pimple, go get it checked. So I went to my skin doctor and because uh, I didn't know, is this, a, is this a, a cancer bump or is it just one of the general old man bumps? Because the old man bumps and spots start to happen at, after a certain age. I know this is a very sexy conversation I'm having with you people. I know it's, a, it's something you want to hear. Old man bumps and spots do start to surface. So she took one look at it, said it was uh, an old man bump. It has a clinical name, but that's what I'll call it. And then uh, she said, do you want me to burn it off? You want me to knock it out? You want me to freeze that baby? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And then she walked out. I'm like, yo, wait, you know what? Let's, uh, let's, let's freeze it off. So now I'm waiting for my old, old man bump to, to, uh, to, cut, to come off. Exciting stuff, right? Happy birthday to me. I'm trying to get to know my new neighborhood, but uh, I'm walking around. It's a nice neighborhood. You know, it's not insanely fancy, but it's a nice neighborhood. But uh, here's an interesting thing you can do when you walk around your neighborhood. Look at telephone poles. Look (laughs) at what's posted on telephone poles. And, you know, if it's just a random poem or perhaps rambling of a uh, schizophrenic mind that's just there on the pole, it makes you wonder, hey, who are my neighbors? Is this something they wrote? Is it something that, you know, I, I just saw this. It was actually someone came over to the house and they parked uh, across the street in the wrong place and they were visiting my house, a future guest. All right, it was Anna Ferris. And she goes, I thought you lived in this house because of this thing that was on the uh, posted on the telephone pole. It just uh, here, I'll read it to you. 
An unsatiated full tilt feeding frenzy has thus begun on cereal box tops, on still barely writhing earthen complexion. These insects as children pick over the red fire, soft and gelatinous corpse of an octopus, leaving its newly dug hole exposed for their own entertainment in tattered splintered array this playground of a shipwreck the only failure within miles to serve due purpose and instead danced upon till inches and inches slowly sink deeper does quicksand really exist this was the village it took to pick over mankind's foibles and ultimate lack of progression for in youth unless it be mother elderism doesn't stand a chance and then it just says Suter, uh, I guess, is the author. But uh, he, I, this was on a, f- uh, on a telephone pole stapled in in my nice, relatively suburban neighborhood. And for some reason, that made Anna Ferris thought that I was the author and she must be at my house. So that's made my, my neighborhood a little mysterious to me. I will do more research. That I will tell you. I hope it's not wrong of me to read the poetry posted on telephone polls. I didn't quite understand it. Not sure why I read it. It all just happened. So what else do I want to tell you? Health things. I uh, smashed my finger this morning. Yeah, smashed it. I was working out. I've been compulsively working out. I I have to admit that uh, I've been locked into a a fairly regimented eating uh, situation. I've trimmed down a bit and I've been just exercising like a fucking lunatic and somehow or another I was uh, dropping some barbells as I was laying on a bench press and I guess there were some other barbells there where I dropped it, it bounced up, smashed my index finger between one barbell and another by complete fucking ridiculous coincidence. How do these things time out right? But there's that moment, you know that moment when you hurt yourself and you know if you're lucky it's not major but you know, even if it is major, it's like that time right before you get into a car accident where you have about a second to know. That's a little different, but that moment right after something really hurts you, there's a vibration that emanates from the place it went down. Just this sort of like, and your whole, you have sort of a, a full body tinnitus experience. It's just this kind of like expansion of a, of a pain vibration. And then all of a sudden it converges as I look down on my hand, I'm like, holy fuck. And it's got that weird white color before blood starts happening. And I realize that that nail doesn't look like it's on anymore. Sorry. I'm sorry, you eating? Yeah, it didn't come off, but it doesn't look good. But I guess fortunately I didn't break my finger. But I swear to God, that weird adrenaline and uh, cortisol rush or whatever happens, again, I'm fortunate that it wasn't a major injury. But man, I got jacked. I got jacked. I, I, we put gauze on it. And now I guess I just wait. It's just a waiting game. I'm going to wait till my nail turns black and whatever happens after that. And I fucked up my picking hand. So... I, I can actually hear the hearts breaking that there there is not going to be any noodling after the show today. I can hear it. Yeah. So happy birthday to me. Um, I get to watch my fingernail turn black and maybe fall off. That's a gift, right? All right, so now uh, I'm happy to share with you a conversation I had with Gail Ann Hurd. She's a big-time movie producer. She uh, produced, um, God, you've, a lot I've mentioned it already in the show. Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, 
The Walking Dead. But she's got a new film coming out called Hellfest, which opens in theaters tomorrow, September 28th. And as I said, she's also the producer of The Walking Dead, which returns October 7th. And she's a producer of the Amazon series Lore, based on the podcast. Season two premieres October 19th. This is me and Gail Ann Hurd. I've talked to other people who started with Roger Corman. I talked to um, Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to Joe Dante. And I've talked to Roger Corman. And um, and you started there. I did. That was yeah. my first job out of college. Where'd you go to college? Stanford. Really? That and was Roger's alma mater. It was. Yes. He was. He has a degree in chemical engineering. That's right. Yes. Did you grow up in Los Angeles? I was born in L.A., fourth generation, Los Angelina. Wow. Yeah. And uh, but my parents moved to Palm Springs, so I actually graduated from Palm Springs High School. Palm Springs. I can't yes. imagine growing up there. Was it nice? Nor could I. Yeah. <laughs> and I did, so. But like, what, what was that community like? It's just re- like retired people and show business. Like, I can't imagine. Yeah, I, this That's what people don't understand is that the economy that yeah. is required to support golf courses and hotels oh, yeah. and all of that yeah. is a very blue collar community. Sure, right. And it's very multi-ethnic. Yeah. So it's oh, not they, what people think. I mean, the, oh, the, 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 wealthy, the wealthy families. Yeah didn't stay there year-round and have their kids go to Palm Springs High School. Right. So there was definitely this class divide. Yeah. Yeah. And there was like the resort people, and then there was the working people. Yeah. They're the townies. Right. And yeah. then the out-of-townies. Right. Right. So there's almost like a summer camp kind of vibe. Like people would come every year, and there'd be like weird relationships between... I'm just talking about kids. You know, you know we didn't meet the people who were oh, really? from out-of-town. No. No. No, because they had a totally different yeah. social right. circle than we did. Yeah. So we were the locals. We hung out together, and we tried to leave town for spring break or yeah. the other you know, big weekends right. or weeks that people would come and invade. And ruin the town? <laughs> yeah, we looked at it that way. <laughs> and what was your dad, what was business was your folks in? Uh, my dad had retired, uh-huh. and he had been in real estate. Yeah, here in L.A.? Yes. Oh, yeah. And then uh, my mother had been his secretary. I thought, oh, the old old school, very old school. But you got it. You went to Stanford. So what was your what was your big plan? I wanted to be a marine biologist. Oh, well, you made the abyss. I did. I did. So you know that was my my one uh, my one contribution to marine sciences. <laughs> did you uh, did you study it? Did I mean did you go full on? I wasn't to... that smart. Oh, it was just no right, the right. sciences at Stanford. Yeah. I mean, I, I did really well in the humanities. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. But so, uh, but I was definitely not at the caliber to, to succeed in yeah. math and science. So you didn't, you didn't do any of the sciences? Well, I took calculus and I took a couple of other courses. But, and I took intro to yeah. computing. Oh, yeah. And, and that was like a new thing then. That was when they had punch cards, right? And we learned Algol W programming language, uh-huh. uh huh, and the IBM three sixty the giant computer that that literally was less than um, the computing power of your phone. That's crazy. Uh, took up an entire building, and you got and you learned that and how to work one of those or how to program yes, it. Yes, right? so I did. Did that come in handy? No, <laughs> but it acquainted you with the machinery. It it made me it made me fear technology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I started Stanford, we were still using slide rules. 
It's really yes, because I started in 1973. Oh, and um, the Texas Instruments com- calculator, yeah, uh, was introduced, and they were you know 400 and some odd dollars. I remember them. Yes, it had pi on it. Yes, it had, yeah, square roots, the whole thing, and they were like the the nerds that had them. It was like the most amazing thing. It was, and and yeah. unfortunately, that's when you started to see the difference between. The haves and the have-nots, because the people they were allowed, you were allowed to use them in class. Yeah. So the people who could afford a three to four hundred dollar outlay of cash for yeah. that were so much more advantaged than the people still on slide rolls. Oh, and they and and they just let that be. Yeah. That it, wow, it's sort of built in that sort of class separation. Like that, you know, they're going to succeed, and you're going to have to work harder to do it. Yep. So when you get out, though, seventy three. The world's pretty crazy. It's pretty exciting, right? Uh, well, I graduated in 77. Yeah. And um, the world was pretty crazy. I had degrees in economics and communications. That's what you came out with? Yes. Yeah. And what made you decide to do the movie thing? When I was in my junior year, I happened to attend a foreign study program uh-huh. in England because that was the only foreign language I spoke. Yeah. And you wanted to get <laughs> out? English. Yeah. Um, I wanted to to see what the world was like outside the United States. Yeah. And they happened to have an intensive program in British film and broadcasting as well as economics. Uh Uh-huh. And that was my first introduction to taking film and TV classes. And you just just did it because you were interested? Well, I did it because I was interested and also there weren't that many other uh, classes offered. Yeah, yeah. And I fell in love with it. So what, who was there? Like, what was uh, what was the the thing that kind of blew your mind about it? Well, to know that I was taking a class where we saw the top documentaries and top feature films, and met with the people who created them, yeah, uh, was really mind blowing to me. Do you remember any of the directors? Uh, one of the Asquiths. Yeah. Um, we met Sir Michael Balkin, who was the Ealing from the Ealing uh-huh. comedies. Yeah. Um, and we met, um, we met a number of, of smaller directors and it was co-taught by the head of the British Film Institute. Oh yeah. And documentary was taught by Basil Wright, who was one of the founders at the National Film Board of Canada. Oh yeah. Along with John Grierson. So it was documentaries that really moved you initially. Both. Yeah. It was both. And you did a documentary a few years ago, right? You I've done one. multiple. Yeah. I, I had one that came out this year. Was that the Man Killer one? Man Killer, about the first woman elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Wilma Man Killer. Now, how does that like? How does a story like that come to you? Like, well, you know, this what? is my. That was my third. Yeah. And what was the all first been, one? The first one was about the true story of the Navajo who served as co-talkers during World War II. Oh, I saw that one. Yeah. That's a good. That was good. <laughs> and uh, and then the second one. Then they what, built. They based a feature on that too, didn't they? That well, that that, that was not the true story, <laughs> right? <laughs> but being really a, that happens a, in movies, Gail. Yeah, I know. I know. That's why I'm saying I feel like I, I feel like a fraud because you know certainly we're not going to land on an asteroid and blow it up like in Armageddon. Oh, I thought I thought I had a lot of hope for I that know, happening. I know. I, I thought well, everything was taken care of. No. No. <laughs> But they do have a near-Earth objects um, uh, division. Oh, good. Well, that's that, trying to protect us by mapping these right. risks to you know our future. No real method to destroying them, but at no. least we can know it's coming. Exactly. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that's uh, kind of cold comfort, but okay. <laughs> so the the Navajo 
Code Crackers was the first doc. Right. And, and they were all for, they've all been for PBS. And I partnered with Native American women. Uh, Valerie Redhorse has directed all of them. Uh huh. And she's of Cherokee descent. Yeah. So it was perfect telling Wilma Mankiller's story being um, a Cherokee. She woman. was the first president of the Cherokee Nation? The first uh, principal chief. Principal chief. The first woman. Yeah. Yes. And did they, like, when something like that, as a producer, does she come to you? Did she, or were, is this something you were interested in? From first of all, she passed away in 2010. Oh. Um, and we were actually approached by PBS, by okay. Vision Maker Media, which is the Native Voices yeah. arm of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And has something like that been uh, uh, something you were interested in before, or was it a whole new thing? Um, Seems sort of specific. It's you know, good. I... I read a fictional script yeah. that was the impetus for me to get involved in Native stories, uh-huh. and I've worked with a lot of indigenous filmmakers, uh-huh. and it, it seemed to me that whatever I could do to help get these stories told and to have a wider viewing public was, yeah. it was important for me to do so because heaven knows there's no money in it. Right. Um, right. So... The, you know these these are the most marginalized people, and this was their this was their yeah, land. That's right. Yeah, and I think we need to remind ourselves about that. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because as a producer, you do have the 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 freedom to to do any any project really that you want, and you know, and after the arc of like you know science fiction films and horror films and stuff that you know that you start to use your power like that's great. It must feel good to do that. I just, you know, to me, these are important stories, yeah. and I really want to do things that keep me interested. Was that always the case? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I cup, a couple of times, people talked me into producing things that I just didn't understand. Like what? Uh, there was a movie called Downtown uh-huh. uh, that I did, um, and uh, and I just didn't understand it. It was a, it was a sort of a buddy cop comedy. Uh-huh. That's really not. I couldn't add anything to it. I right. couldn't make it better. Right, right, right. And so right. then, what am I doing? Right. I'm. I'm not the kind of producer who just puts my name on something. Sure. It was I too to, finite. You know, there wasn't. Uh, it wasn't uh, of the imagination enough. Maybe. But you know, I got to work with uh, Richard Benjamin, who directed oh, yeah. it, who was fantastic, and uh, Forrest Whitaker was one of the stars. Oh yeah. So you know, what I do like to do is. Mix things up, yeah. you know, in, in terms of working with people uh, in front of and behind the camera yeah. um, who might not have leading role opportunities. I mean, Forrest was not someone at the time who was being cast in leading roles. Right, right. So let's go back to Corman. So you, get, you, you leave Stanford and you do the thing in, in uh, England. And then how Well, I was you... still at Stanford during that time. So it last year? In, it was my junior year. Okay, so you come back to Stanford, and you're like, I want to be in movies. I want to make no, movies. No, I, 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 I thought that was fun. Yeah. I have no idea how to pursue a career in it. Uh-huh. So my path was very different. Um, one of my professors uh, was a gentleman who teaches to this day now at, at, at San Diego State. Yeah. I mean, uh, at San Francisco State, Stephen Kovacs. Uh-huh. And he'd been hired by Roger Corman to be head of physical production. And he recommended Roger to me. So uh-huh. I got a letter out of the blue. You told him you were interested, though. Well, he knew that I was interested. Right, because you were, took and, uh And even though I failed miserably um, in science and uh, a little less so in math, yeah. uh, I was excellent in the humanities. And I 
graduated in the top of my class uh-huh. in the humanities, and Roger was looking for one of the smart people uh-huh. from the communications department. And for any specific reason, he, as an assistant, okay, he always wanted he always wanted people that you know he he wanted people who were smart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, for, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, John right. Cameron. Well, they know. were they, they were they assistants. Uh, or did they come in no, as filmmakers? They, they came yeah. in as filmmakers. Right. But but Roger always wanted people who would um, end up having huge careers. Yeah, yeah. So you okay? So you took the gig. I did. I took the gig as his assistant, thinking that that was going to be my job for life. <laughs> um, did you like it that much, or were you? Well, no. I mean, how many role models did we have as women back right. in the seventies? Sure. As producers. And I was really lucky that early on, uh, one of my mentors, in addition to Roger Corman and Barbara Boyle, who worked for him, uh, was Deborah Hill, the late Deborah Hill, who, you know, we've, there's a new Halloween coming out. So I really, it's it's so important to me to keep her name alive uh-huh. um, because she was such an inspiration to me. She co-wrote, produced Halloween um, and, and all of those great John Carpenter films. And was she with Corman as well? No, she wasn't. But... You? She came and um, she had, uh, she was filming yeah. uh, some of Escape from New York. Oh, with uh, With Kurt Carmen Russell. and, and yeah. yes. And, um, and she hired Jim Cameron to work in the film and visual effects. From, and he was a Corman he was at a the Corman. time. Yeah. And he was like, he, oh, that was his specialty, right? He was, he, he did. He was art department and visual effects. When you got there. No, um, I was when I first met him. He was building spaceship props for um, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, which was Rogers' homage to the Seven Samurai. Right. So he was, but he was at the Cameron operation when you right. got there. Yeah. Right. And he was just a, like a, a a model nerd. <laughs> he was building spaceship props, and yeah. then and then Roger, we needed an art director, and since he had designed. All of the spaceships, yeah, and he could draw. Yeah, um, I said, let's give him a shot. So we went from one of the model makers to art director overnight. When you were there, and you, yes, and, and, and I was and the Corm- assistant production manager on Battle Beyond the Stars. Okay, so that was after you. Brought, we were how long after you became the assistant did that happen? Uh, well, I then uh, was head of marketing for you New d- World Pictures. You just kind of moved around. Had, yes. In, in, Wherever there was a need, you went, uh-huh. regardless of how skilled in you that, were in, in that position. <laughs> and uh, and then I went from that to being a PA. So I went from head of a department to being to a production PA. assistant. So yeah. you were, you started as assistant, then you're head of marketing. So what were you taking in at that time that you know in, intellectually or for your own business model? Did you? When did it start to his way of doing business start to impact the way you saw how to do what you do? Well, I think that if you look at what Roger was doing back then, in addition to the exploitation films that he was making, yeah, he was distributing Truffaut films and uh, oh, right, yeah. Kurosawa films yeah. and Ingmar Bergman films. Right. So it it was. Very much like if you want to look at my career, I make incredibly commercial things, and then I make documentaries. Yeah. So it, that was a great example for me. And we so as head of marketing, you you know you marketed everything from rock and roll high school, which to, was his right 
yeah. to Francois Truffaut's The Green Room. Right, because um, he was like the distributor, the the first distributor, right? Well, of Janus the, in America. films, Janus films, I yeah. think, predated him, uh-huh. but it was really Janus and New World at the time. So his whole like, because I talked to him, like it, it's it's interesting that he continued to make the type of movies that he makes, but he always had such amazing respect for these movies that were you know much loftier and much more uh, artistically provocative is do you think that he he didn't see himself as being able to produce those kind of movies or you know i i think that i think the concern really was if you didn't get it a hundred percent right it was going to be a failure because mm-hmm. that audience is much pickier right um and an you exploitation audience will at least show up for the first weekend and if you make the movie for little enough money. Right. Um, and in addition to that, you know, he didn't give anyone final cut. Yeah. You're not going to say to an Ingmar Bergman or a right. Francois Truffaut. Yeah. You know. Right. Roger was never wanted to be Harvey Weinstein. Right. Well, that's good. Yeah. In, in, in every possible way. Right. But like he, he also, like even though the directors that started with him went on to do incredible sort of um, auteur type of movies, when they were with him, they made Roger Corman movies. And But Roger was very upfront about that. Yeah. In fact, when Jim and I wanted to make The Terminator, he said, "It's gonna, the budget's going to be too large. You've learned everything you can possibly learn from me. It's time for you guys to go out on your own. I mean, how many people... Would would inst- you know would would say uh, well you know most people would say I'll executive produce I really won't contribute anything but I'll you know take my cut yeah instead he said you've learned all that you can learn here go go out and fly on your own wings yeah and he did that a lot with he, everybody yeah he g- he gave them the the nuts and bolts education of production or directing or whatever the hell they needed to do and he said go yep go I'll, I'll get a new crew of people to make this stuff exactly. And he was okay with it. And you know what? We're still in touch. And I see him and Julie yeah. once or twice a year. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that, I think he his name really should be a household name along with everyone else. Because I can't imagine the American film industry without the people whose careers he started. No doubt. I, and I think he is a household name to, to people who know film. Yes. Right? Yes. So you, at, when you go to, to be a PA... Is that where you started to really understand the set and how that all worked? How, what was the process? Uh, well, I had to do everything. Yeah. So I made coffee. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 as I recall, yeah. um, the second AD was somewhat dyslexic, so I ended up doing the call sheets uh-huh. because you don't want to call sheet right. with, you know, pickup time as 6.30 in the morning and, you know, you don't want it to say 3.30. You know, 3.60. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, and, and you've never done any of this before. None of it. Yeah, none of it. And then uh, I worked with Rob Botine putting uh, methyl cellulose ultra slime yeah. on the humanoids and humanoids from the deep. <laughs> and I worked with the props department, and I worked yeah. with the costumes department. Right. Um, I drove motorhomes. Uh-huh. I emptied the chemical toilets in motorhomes. Wow. I did the runs from um, Mendocino down to the Oakland airport to pick up the cast to bring them set. Yeah. And I was working, I mean, I was essentially working, you know, 100 plus hours a week. But you were also essential to the whole operation. It would seem like like when you're that person, it's all kind of moving through you. Well, I, I don't know that I was essential. Yeah. Um, but we, 
every Roger Corman film is essentially understaffed. Yeah. So everyone is essential. Right. But by doing all that, you 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 learned all of it. Yes. And then on other films, I worked as a grip, and you know drove the grip truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I and I really don't have as much respect for producers who don't know how sets work. Yeah. Are there a lot of them? Are there must I'd be. say most of them. Yeah, because they're just money people. You know, or they've, or they've, you know, done a lot of development notes, and they right come and they to set power. And, and think, yeah, you know, and just tell people, yeah. hurry up, how come yeah. we're not shooting faster? Not understanding how difficult it is to, you know, to to do it the right way, right? And to be safe and, um, you so, know, and value everyone who's. Pitching in on a on a project, and who was like it, at your time when you were there at Corman's? Who were the directors that were around? Who was who was working at the time? Oh, Alan Arkish did Rock and Roll High School, right? And um, and there was a woman who actually directed Humanoids from the Deep, Barbara Peters. Uh huh. And then was Dante uh, there? Dante, I knew Joe from cutting trailers because as head of marketing, right? I need trailer. Well, that was he was the cut. trailer guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I got to know all you know the the previous generation primarily through the marketing side. Uh huh. Um, Peter Bogdanovich. Oh did yeah. Saint Jack. While I was there, uh, and then um, Jim was directing Second Unit on a number of films. That's where he started directing. He doing Second yes. Unit stuff. Yes. So you're. When did you guys start knowing you wanted to work together, you and Cameron? When I was the assistant production manager on Battle Beyond the Stars, and he was, and I helped him get promoted from model builder to art director. And that, is that where you guys like started to be with each other? No, you just no, started I working. Was, no, and we didn't start dating until post production on Terminator. Oh, really? Yeah. So, how did that relationship? T- did you guys just decide you wanted to write together, or how did it work? Um. Well. I was helping out because we were so far behind in our department, so I would help spray paint sets and uh, a lot more than you would typically do if you were a union, uh, DGA, UPM, but Roger wasn't. Right. So I literally did whatever needed to be done. And so, you know, spray spray painting a set, you know, painting a set takes a long time, so we'd be be chatting about ideas. Uh And, I mean, back then he already had the ideas for... For the abyss, he already had ideas for um, you know films that are being made now that he's producing. Uh huh. They they it was just, it, he'd had them since you know he'd been developing ideas um, since he was thirteen or fourteen. And he and he's still executing them now. Yes, that's a lot of ideas. Well, and you guys indeed. are still friends. Yeah. Do you work together still? No, we Not never work together. No. I mean, he's got he's got you know he's making. Avatars, two through four or five. Is it going to be as big a production? I think, if not bigger. Oh my god, that was such a uh, like the just the the promotion for that alone was insane. Well, you know what? And you, we did enter the world of Pandora, and he brought it alive. Yeah. Did you love it? I did. I yeah. did. Although I have to say, three D watching three D makes me. Nauseous. Nauseous. <laughs> it, it's a little much, huh? So, um, so I'm I'm one of those people that I tend to prefer 2D. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, do you think 3D is ever going to take uh, you know have you know, take over or anything? You know what I I I'm, I am as we established <laughs> not the greatest tech and science person, yeah. so I'm not going to predict. So when you guys so ultimate initially Terminator was going to be done at New World. No, never. 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 But you told Corman about it. Yes. And he said, that's too big for me. So we took it to Barbara Boyle, who had been the chief operating officer at New World, yeah. who was now working at Orion Pictures for Mike Medavoy. And you had the script? Yes. And and that's what sold it to them? Yes. And then you guys were like, we're going to produce it? Uh, well, they said that they would put some money in for the foreign yeah. and that we needed to come up with the rest of the money. How'd you do that? Um, I bought a desk. <laughs> yes. The, 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 yes. So when you're a producer and you're trying to get your first project going, you, you do whatever it takes. And right. There was someone I knew had a multiple picture, picture deal with Orion. Yeah. And they didn't have their next two projects. Yeah. A company by the name of Hemdale. Uh huh. The head of it, John Daly, wouldn't take my phone calls. So I found out that the head of development was a guy named Barry Plumley, and he wouldn't take my phone calls. But then I found out through the grapevine that he was selling a desk. Uh huh. <laughs> so I got him to return my phone call by saying that I was interested in buying his desk. <laughs> and I'm also one of those people who, even though I didn't need a desk, yeah. <laughs> um, I felt so guilty that I had um, sort of. Um, faked my way in that I bought the desk. <laughs> yeah. But then, but Barry read what was at the time a treatment, yeah. uh, a 40-some-odd page treatment. You dropped it off the day you picked up the desk? Yes. Uh-huh. And, uh, and surprisingly, as I said, you know, he read it, yeah. and he called the next day saying he wanted to have a meeting. And that is literally how Terminator got, got off the launching pad. That's a, and so when you presented him with the treatment, did he realize, like, you don't want the desk, do you? No, he didn't, because I <laughs> bought it. <laughs> and at that point, he didn't care. He did. and, and my check cleared. And that was, well, there you go. So you, you, were, you were on a business level. Uh, it was good a to quid pro with. quo. Yeah, good. What, what, like, because I don't completely understand production. So when you do something like Terminator, as you do everything you work on, you know, what are the initial concerns? What do you have to make happen? Well, when you're making a film with not enough money and not enough time, um, and it's an independent film, the first thing you have to do is convince the completion bond company, which yeah. at the time was Film Finances, yeah. that you can actually do what you say because they're betting on you. It's yeah. like a construction bond, so think of it that way. Yeah. That the building is going to be finished on time and it's not going to fall down. Yeah. So there was a fantastic gentleman who passed away years ago, Lindsley Parsons, Jr., and he's another reason that I have a career, because Jim and I went in and met with him, and he was incredibly savvy, uh, and he asked us all of the difficult questions, like, like how are you gonna, how are you gonna create the Terminator? How are you know, how are you gonna have the final chase in the factory where yeah. there's only a portion of the Terminator? You know, how are you gonna do all of that? And, and we had the answers, and we even had the locations that we had identified. You worked out all the the effects. We had, and, and obviously Jim with his expertise in visual effects, yeah. uh, and you know we had the stop motion armature figured out. Um, at the time, we were turned on to um, um, 
the the uh, late Stan Winston. Yeah. Through Dick Smith, the Academy Award winning um, makeup artist. Yeah. Because we were told that that Orion didn't want the film unless Dick Smith did the effects, and he said, "I'm the wrong person. I do character yeah. effects, makeup, and you need someone who can do." armatures and animatronics as well and he's the one who turned us on to stan and said that he would back stan and uh and i think even give his name as someone if that if stan didn't deliver he would step in even though he said stan will deliver right but he, he vouched for him yes and then and that's how, and those are the first concerns yes and, and uh so lindsley completely backed us and in fact to the point that um, when we first screened the film and everyone said, oh, my God, this is a disaster and it's an embarrassment, Lindsley looked at it and said, this is going to be a classic. And I believe in you and Jim 100%. So when John Daly tried to take over the film from us. At Orion or where? At, he was at Hemdale. Yeah, okay. Uh, he, they, he tried to take the film away from Jim and me. And recut it and do yes. whatever. Yeah. And... Um, that Lindsley said because we were projecting to go into the contingency. Yeah. So there's a 10% contingency that he would take the film away from Hemdale and back Jim and me. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, these are the kinds of alliances. These are the, that's the kind of support that people who don't know a lot about the film industry. Yeah. These are such important people. Without without Lindsley Parson Jr. support, the Terminator yeah. might not have turned out the way that it did. And you think these people exist today as well? Oh, they're, there's there's no question that they yeah. do, and they're really unsung heroes. The, that champion movies on that level. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what was? Why did people? Why did screening go badly? Well, because the the animatronics that weren't done. Mm-hmm. Um, we we still had. Um, we still had stop motion animation that also um, was done by a guy named Peter Kleinow. He was the the stop motion animator who played slide guitar for the Flying Burrito Brothers oh, in great. a previous incarnation. <laughs> great band. <laughs> yeah, and every now and again we'd go watch him play at the Palomino or something. Really? I mean, anyway, the, 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 these were great days. But anyway, um, they weren't done, so we had lots of slugs in there. Right. And so the the first screening was really a disaster. But you 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 plowed through and you made a mega. We did, hit. and because of Lindsley Parsons supporting us, yeah, um, and uh, and Mike Metavoy and Barbara Boyle, we ended up becoming the number one film of the fall of 1984, and made Time Magazine's ten best list. Well, it's a great movie. Yeah, but but we were told before we started after that first screening by the head of marketing yeah. for Orion that it was a a total embarrassment, a down and dirty exploitation film um that would be out of theaters after the first weekend because of the poor word of mouth. What what did they know? <laughs> well, um I'm I'm just glad they were wrong. Yeah. None well, of us know anything as 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 um Moyen Goldman says. Yeah. That's true. Well, what was going on in films at that time? I mean, what, it, was it a, 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 un, a unique film for that landscape? Well, I mean, at the time, Orion was making Amadeus, which went on to win the Academy Awards, so right. they were clearly doing something right. Yeah. But, um, but you know, we Jim and I called the the nightclub yeah. in which the first the 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 Terminator and Sarah Connor first meet, and he targets her with the red laser. Right. Dot. Yeah. And Kyle Reese saves her. 
um, we call we call the nightclub tech noir, because to us there was a subgenre that was developing um, of um, films about the possible dark side of technology that we need to be thinking about. What yeah. are the ethics involved in a lot of the things that we're dealing with today with the rise of AI and the rise of right. robots? But that's something we were thinking about back in the 80s. And we, we saw films like, um, you know, 2001 sure, yeah. was an inspiration and Blue Thunder. Right. And Robo uh, RoboCop, I, I think, I can't remember if it was before or after. Um, and that and one even Blade has Runner. Blade Runner, yeah, and RoboCop almost, almost is a, sati- a satire. Almost, it has a satirical element. But to it. it makes you really think oh, yeah. about these things. Yeah, so it's getting you know, they, away from us. Yeah, yeah. So it was there. It was brewing. This genre. It was. Yeah, of of sort of. And uh, and, and that's why you know about a year and a half ago, or two years ago, when the when the late Stephen Hawking basically said, "We need to be afraid about robots and AI." I'm thinking if you had just seen the Terminator in 1984, you could have gotten out way ahead of this issue. <laughs> it it is like I was just talking about it to to somebody uh, recently. How much we surrender to just on an informational basis. I mean, if they can really, and I don't understand much, but if they can really teach the mass of the machinery in place to think, uh, they've got us. They've got everything on us. Yes. You know, they can just erase our lives. So so at first the issue becomes who are the gatekeepers and yeah. the next becomes when, you know, when there are sentient computers, yeah. if there aren't already now, right? AI. Sure, algorithms um, yeah. that, uh, dem- that pick demographics, that they, they are sentient. And, and as I recall, wasn't there something in social media where they created sort of an AI, an AI bot uh-huh. that within, within hours became a, you know, started spouting racist rhetoric? Right. Oh, based on uh, uh, what they were taking from... Yes. Right, of course, right. That's the monster. So that's who's going to be in charge. The the robot gatekeeper is going to be a horrible racist. Well, uh, let's hope not. Yeah, we've already got a president that's one. You know, we think... I, I think I think just like doctors yeah. take the, you know, Hippocratic Oath, yeah. first do no harm, I think that everyone who's a developer of software, developer of, of um, biotech, yeah. needs to first and foremost think First, do no harm, and what what are the you know unintended consequences of their creation? Right. Well, you know, it seems to me that a lot of scientists are sort of like, well, that's not you know, we're just here doing the research, you know, and wherever it goes after that, it's not necessarily our responsibility. Well, look at yeah. what you know. Well, yeah, n- the nuclear bomb. Look exactly. at look at look at the scientists then who regret. Oh yeah. Who regret? And they knew what exactly they what they were doing and yes. why they were doing it. Yes. Yeah, but so this this area of movie making. Because when I talk to you about it, it's, it seems like Corman did not, you know, though he made movies that dealt with stuff like this, science fiction movies and, and certainly movies that were, uh, I think, creatively ahead of their time, he didn't uh, have a, 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 a unified vision, right? He would make almost any type of movie. Well, no, I mean, he, he did actually have a vision. And the, the interesting thing, if you go back and look at one of his films, mm-hmm. which he directed, yeah. starring William Shatner, it was called The Intruder. Uh-huh. And it was about racism in the South. And it was actually a message movie. Right. So uh, I think that I think that Roger always thought about things like yeah. that. And I think that that there is subtext if you look sure. for it in a lot of his films. Right. I guess I was Not thinking genre. But no, he always had a good heart and a progressive heart yes. about the message. And and the fact that he hired women and that yeah. women directed in the in the 70s for him and were editors and, you know, 
he really did not look at women as, well, they should be stuck as secretaries for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's what I was expecting. I was expecting to go into a culture in which, you know, I would go from secretary and one day I would be an executive assistant. Yeah. That was the the level of my ambition at the time. And it was because I wanted to work for Roger Corman and Barbara Boyle and the other people who were running the company that I became a lot more I became a lot more enlightened than I was at the time. Well, that's uh, what's what's supposed to happen when you're allowed to. I, I know, but l- it, we haven't really even gotten to that level now I know. in the industry. Yeah, and that's, that was the '70s. It's crazy, and I mean, a lot of that's coming to head now. It is, but but I, you know, I think there are, there's a lot of fear out there because um, uh, it has been an industry in which the people who've held on to power for so long, right, obviously don't want to give it up easily. That's for sure, and I guess that's the advantage of having somebody who who is intelligent and progressive minded, and you know, not an asshole like Roger, who really ran a sort of like you know, he ran his own show business. He did. I mean, right. at the time, I remember that the letterhead said America's largest independent production and distribution company. And that's what he had. Yep. And all of us who worked there, even though we were exploited, I mean, the most I ever made working for him up until I produced a film for him was $180 a week, even when I was running marketing. Right. Um, you weren't going to get rich there. Right. But if you had the talent, you your career was going to get launched. Right. You could. You were supported there. Yes. Right. And it seems like, you know, when I, I look at the, the some of the movies that you were doing early on, I mean, they all have, not unlike Rogers, really, that their heart's in the right place. Even Alien Nation's really about racism, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And Aliens is about the the sort of, um, that's about the cancerous capitalism to a degree. Yes. Yeah. Right. And The Abyss is about, you shouldn't, shouldn't go that deep. And and I think it's about, um, um, you know, we've got to think about this arms race that we're in right. and what are the possible consequences. And let's not always be fearful of the other. Let's not be fearful of, we call them NTIs, you know, non-terrestrial intelligence. Let's not just assume that they're out to get us. Right. Yeah, that's always the thing. They're going to be bad. I, I mean, it, it, I, I think what's sadder now is that they may just be like, well, let's... Let's not even bother with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're we're, on the road, we're on the road to destruction. Right. Yes. And I don't know I, I, I don't know if we're turning back, if that's turning back. But you also deal with that in your movies. Now, when you, when you think about when, when something's pr- presented to you, I mean, a few of these, Aliens was already the first Aliens. How did you come to get the second one? So what happened was um, Jim and I were supposed to make... Terminator 1983. Yeah. But Dino De Laurentiis um, preempted Arnold to do Conan the Destroyer, which was the sequel to Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. So we had to wait a year. Right. So, you know, Jim needed to put food on the table. Yeah. And um, and so he was doing ad campaigns, you know, for, you know, for low-budget films. But um, he was a writer, so he had a sample with the Terminator. Yeah. And he went in to meet with Walter and the team, and yeah. and um, and they they pitched him a Spartacus in space idea, and he said, "Well, is there anything else?" Yeah. And they said, "Well, we're thinking of doing a sequel to Alien, which sounds very common now, but it was 
very unusual then to do sequels. Yeah. And so Jim came back with a pitch. They liked that pitch, and he also was hired for another sequel, which um, which was uh, f- which was Rambo: First Blood Part Two. So he wrote both scripts in this hiatus between the time that we had the f- financing for the Terminator and the time we started shooting. Wow! And and this is at that point you had established your production company. Yes. And were you also taking on other projects other than your own? No. 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 Just you guys. I mean, it was, it was, I had my own company. Jim wasn't a part of that. Yeah. And I had an assistant. That was the, that was, that was my production company. That was the whole thing? Yes. Yeah. And when does that change? When does it become a larger operation? Which movie does it? um, After Aliens, 20th Century Fox offered me an overall production deal. And that's when. Because you were making money. I was making money. Yes. A lot of money. Yeah, and that's when everything changed. Yep. So when 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 a deal happens as a production entity, what what does that mean? What's what's that contract like? What does it mean that they do? What does twentieth do? They're going to release whatever you make. No, no. It means that you're obligated to. It depends whether it's first look. I had a first look deal. Yeah. So it's obligated to show them everything I was interested in developing. They had the first crack at it. Yeah. It didn't guarantee that it got made. Right. I mean that's a different. That's a put picture deal, and sure. I didn't. I never had that. But it also sets forth um, what your compensation is going to be, and it gives you an overhead, and the overhead will cover um, staffing right? so that I could hire a couple more people yeah, and I could develop more than just one project at a time. Right. So which movies did you make at 20th? Uh, made Aliens, yep. Alienation, um, and The Abyss. And then what happens? Where do you go? And then... Uh, and. Then after that, uh, the late Don Steele reached out to me, and I had a deal at Columbia. And then after that, uh, uh, Sherry Lansing. Uh, my my next deal was at Paramount. Yeah, when she was t- when she was head of Paramount. Right. So that and, must- then, and then I had a deal at Universal also. So you've always had a lot of deals, you know, moving around a bit. Yes. Yeah, and you and Jim marry and divorce in this time, and continue to work together. <laughs> was that was that ever awful? Well, you know, I mean, the, the thing is that we we worked together before we started dating. Yeah, exactly. So we'd already established right. what that relationship was. Right. And I think if it had been different, yeah, it wouldn't have worked as well. <laughs> right. Do you have kids? I Not with him. Oh, okay. <laughs> so after, like, that relationship starts, it stops, and then you do... How many, how many Terminators did you do? Uh, uh, Five? Three. Three? Yeah. Three Terminators? Mm-hmm. Did you write on all of them? No. You didn't? No. What What is your creative input as a producer after a certain point? You, do, you don't have, like, you know, you don't get to say, like, well, can we do this another way? Oh, of course you. I mean, I, th- I think that's the value of a producer yeah. is always trying to um, be able to see the forest, not just the trees. Yeah. And um, so I've always been very involved, especially... In post-production. Yeah. Um, so development notes, helping to solve problems on set. Yeah. Because you know, but at you that, know what's But up. at that point, I had multiple projects going on. Right. So I was going from, from you know, one set to another. And if once, once films stopped shooting in Los Angeles, it made it much harder because you can't be in. It's You can go to two sets if they're shooting in the same yeah. city you can't be on the same day, around. but yeah. yeah, you can't do that. If, and, that and that started happening more, like a lot of movies were shooting away yes. from town. Yeah. Now, 
I know that uh, you had a relationship with the Palma as well. Like, do you like? Was there a shift from <laughs> from uh, like uh, in your mind from doing the type of movies that you and Cameron did to like his more horror psychological thrillers? Did you? Were you, what? What attracted you to him? Brian's one of the smartest, funniest, um, most engaging people yeah. I've ever met. Wild filmmaker too. He, he is, and uh, and he's incredibly smart. Yeah. Um, and he he really should teach film. Yeah. If you if you saw the documentary about him, you'll understand. I gotta watch it. It's a that. great documentary. Um, you'll understand just how much of an expert, not just on Hitchcock. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, he, it, being with him was like it was like a graduate course in film. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple guys like like that. Scorsese's like yes. that, too. And, oh, absolutely. And Bogdanovich a bit. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I just mean, those film yes. heads. Yeah. Yeah. So you learned a lot I, you know, about movies. You know, I did. And, uh, and we worked together. We made a film called Raising Cain with, together. With John Lithgow, right? With John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. A, that was a trippy movie. Like he was, what was he, a split personality? Yeah, or, exactly. How'd that do? It did well. Yeah. I mean, we made it, we made it, it was, came in a million dollars under budget. Uh, it only cost, I think the budget was 12. We made it for 10 something. Yeah. You know, and so everyone was surprised. It came out, did well. Brian's very much a New York person. Right. And he moved out here, never really loved it out here. Right. Moved so, back to New York and oh, that was, was that, up. Oh, yeah. Oh, so it was a long distance thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't live out here early on too, or no? He was always no, New York. Always. Wow. Yeah, I miss his movies. I don't know. Like I can't remember the last movie he made. Really. Well, he's still making them. Yeah. I, is it still? Uh, does he, it still? He have still the, loves thrillers. Yeah. Do you like him? I do. I do love thrillers. Did you make a shift from uh, from sci fi dystopian movies to uh, to thrillers at some point, and then horror? Or were that you know? Always, I do, I, the, the truth is that everyone likes to think that producers are really uh, in charge of their own existence. <laughs> we're not. Uh, but we, you're sought out by a certain type of filmmaker, I would imagine. Well, I tend to be the one seeking so, oh, things yeah. out, and and it also depends on the access that agents or managers will give you to their talent so they tend to they tend to to um they tend to pigeonhole you right so you they they'll send you the scripts or the creators or the directors who make thrillers or you know but i also made a movie called the water dance yeah and that one um best for which is really kind of embarrassing uh best first feature um In, at uh, the Spirit Awards, yeah. beating out Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. It won the Audience Award at Sundance. Yeah. How'd you and get that movie? Because I knew the I knew the writer-director, Neil Jimenez. Yeah. And, you know, and, and once again, it's it's having people who are passionate about a project. And that was like Back a real kind of indie thing. Total indie. Yeah. It, do you, but you don't do a lot of those, do you? I did a movie called Safe Passage with Susan Sarandon and Sam oh, Shepard. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know, I've I've done a few. I did a comedy. I've done a couple of comedies. Um, I did a movie called Dick. Oh yeah, with uh, Michelle Williams and yeah. and Kirsten Michelle Williams Dunst. and Kirsten Dunst and Dan Perry, Hedaya. Right. It yeah, it was about two Nixon, dog right. walkers to the president. Right. 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 right who right. turn are, are are turn out to be teenage deep throat. Oh, okay. Before yeah, we knew yeah, that yeah, Mark yeah, Felt right, was deep right. throat. Yeah, yeah. How do those movies do for you? 
You know, I love doing things like that film. I got because it was it was a parody. Um, Andy Fleming, the co-writer and director, someone whose career started off with a film called Bad Dreams. Yeah, and uh, you know he had done he had done The Craft. He had done a number of other films, and uh, you know it was for Mike Medavoy. So yeah. it was perfect. So you knew him from yes. back in the day. Uh huh. And you, you build, you, I guess you build these relationships over time in this town, for sure. Yeah, and you know, and and if you're trustworthy, right, and you have someone's back, yeah, and you're not a psychopath, yeah. um, people will actually work with you more than once, <laughs> and they know you can deliver the goods. Yeah, and then I'll actually be on set, and I'll actually do something other than, you know, right, uh, just uh, everything okay. Yeah, exactly. Fire that guy. I'll be in my office. Right. <laughs> yeah. But and Armageddon was a huge hit for you, right? Yes, that was a big movie. That was the number one. I've had two number one films um, in the world. The first was uh, well, it was Terminator Two. Yeah, and then Armageddon. And those are like yeah, and and everybody remembers those movies. Like they're it's crazy. And then like later, like in the two thousands, you got into the comic book business a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean early I, on that was early before. on. I know, I know, and 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 oftentimes I'm I'm too early. Oh yeah. So you know, the, I I recognized that Marvel was going to be a huge franchise. There was tentpole. no way it couldn't. Oh, there you was knew that. no way it couldn't be, because I read comic books from the time that I was a kid. Yeah, I love science fiction, fantasy, horror, and comic books, and um and the the truth was that Roger Corman knew that too. Yeah, and he was also ahead of his time, and plus didn't have the budgets. To make the kinds of films to that own are, the are su- sustaining. Well, he actually had the rights to, I think, Fantastic Four and made really? a Fantastic Four. And I think Marvel bought back the rights and it was never released. No kidding. Mm-hmm. But you did, like, it was starting to happen. I mean, did the Punisher or the your Hulk, was, you did... I did both Hulks. Yeah. The so Eric I did Ban- the... Eric Bana? Right. The Ang Lee Hulk as yeah. well as the Louis Leterrier, Edward Norton Hulk. And the Punisher. Yes, and I did two Punishers. Is why is he sort of a secondary character? I'm not a huge comic book guy, and I've been condescending about the genre. I'll well, tell shame you the, on you. I, I know. I, I, I've made an argument on my podcast before about um, how culturally we, we've become infantilized, and it's sort of pushed out more of the, the type of movies that would be engaging for adults. Well, you know what? That's a point. But the good news is that... Those films are are coming back. I mean, I go to the art house cinemas all the time. Right. I mean, that's a great thing about living in Pasadena. There are a lot of them. Lemley is the great. The Lemley yeah. and, and, and the Arclight, yep, um, the Arclight shows a lot, too. And um, and the truth is, every time I go to the, th- to the theater, it's full. Right. Oh, when you see the smaller movies. When I see the smaller movies. That's because there's so many grown-ups craving them that even without big publicity budgets, they're like, we've got to go. To well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I also I love the so. fact that we've got a thriving bookstore next to right next the Lemleys. We've yeah. got Romans. Yeah. yeah. And so they're, or, you know, and, so. and, and parents are teaching their kids to appreciate not only great literature. You think? But great film. Yeah? I do. And, okay. And, you know. Everywhere? And, I don't know that it's everywhere because those. That's why it's to me. It's important to go to film festivals everywhere. I'm going to the Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis with yeah. Mankiller. I try to go either Valerie Redhorse or I go to as many film festivals as possible because there's so many places that don't have art house cinemas, and the that's, only opportunity they have to see these films yeah. 
it's is it if a you film bring festival? Them. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, well, that sort of speaks more to my point is that when you have most of the, the distribution in the theaters around the country running the bigger Marvel movies or more commercial comedies that are usually awful, and there is no outlet, some of these people have to drive an hour if they want to see a small movie. Whereas it, like, it, it should, I think they had a better distribution at another time, or maybe the movies were just different. I mean, there's always been blockbusters or since the 80s. Well, I think I think the difference really is streaming. Uh-huh. I yeah. think I mean almost everyone says to me, "Is it worth going to see in the I theater, yeah. or should I stream it?" And what do you say? I, was, I mean, if I like something, I go no, go see it in, in the theater. You still I mean, believe in the theater, the film, the theater? Oh, going I love experience? it. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I mean, to me, there is nothing better than being in a theater with people who are going on the same journey with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, you don't need to know them. Right, But you have great. a connection with them, and you sure. can't get that at home on your yeah. you computer. Yeah, you can all walk out confused together if it's a difficult ending. No, and, you know, and you go to the restroom afterward, and everyone's talking about it. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. It, no matter how big they make the screen for your house, even if it takes up a whole wall, you're still not at the movies, even right. if you make popcorn. Yes, exactly. It's a communal experience. So I still, you know, so I was just at TIFF. I yeah. was just at the Toronto Film Festival. That's a big um, one. And uh, with uh, Mankiller, did you? No, show? no, no, uh-huh. no. Um, actually, uh, Mankiller screened at Imaginative, which is also in Toronto, run by TIFF uh, through TIFF, and uh, and it's the most important Indigenous film festival. Oh, that's and great. so we've been invited to festivals all over. We won Best Documentary at the Maoriland Film Festival oh, in New great. Zealand. Oh, and wow. I'm going to Iceland with it in a couple of weeks. Oh, and I bet you you're going to meet a lot of filmmakers. Yes. So so that to me is, is what's so exciting. Is oh, that must be incredibly exciting. When you get to be my age, yeah. to be re-enthused about the business, it's important to leave Los Angeles. It's important to get to know the people who are starting their careers now. Yeah. And um, especially in those communities, I can't, you know, the Icelandic indigenous population, the creativity from that area must it must like it's completely different. And and that's why to me, it's so important to support things like Vision Maker Media, which is part of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and make sure that they continue to have a budget because we need those voices. For sure. Canada does a much better job. Sure. Canada is doing a much better job at everything right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, because they actually <laughs> finance, I mean, they, they finance Canadian filmmakers mm-hmm. and not just commercial ones. They finance the, you know, the, the, the new voices yep. and the independent voices. And they have a lot of indigenous film financing. That's great. Yeah. And it's it's part of the national fabric. I mean, there's part of there's something about e- even partial socialism that is is sort of like uh, encourages yeah. That kind of stuff. It's important, yeah. and we should put our money behind it. That's right. Well, it, it, you know, that's one thing that seems to happen uh, is that when things falter here, people with money and their heart in the right place do seem to step up a bit. But that shouldn't be the only thing that we rely on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the 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 government should encourage and embrace this stuff. Yes. But uh, I think we're a bit away from it right now it, indeed but you know yeah. what I, I i like to to think that um that we'll be back on track yeah no i do you have to we have and, to and that's you. why it, it's back to, to film yeah um you know seeing films at the festival like you know i saw american dharma which is about steve bannon which is a very interesting film and last night actually even though it screened at tiff i didn't see it there i saw quincy about quincy jones which oh, is a yeah. remarkable documentary and i saw green book 
the 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 film that won uh, the audience award and that's another film that you have to go to the theater to see right. when it comes out and it's coming out from universal so you know so this is around. a film that'll have What's that, that has, one about it's i had never heard of of this but um in the 60s you know in the 70s, I remember doing road trips, and you had the AAA guide to, you know, well, the Green Book was oh. for African Americans. Viggo Mortensen's in it. Viggo Mortensen yeah, yeah. and Marshala Ali. Yeah. And um, who starred in a movie that I did um, called The Wronged Man, opposite Julia Ormond. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's about this unlikely duo where uh, Viggo plays an Italian bouncer yeah. who's driving... Marshala Ali, who plays, and this is based a true story, um, who is Don Shirley, who is the leader, the the, fir- the most important African American uh, pianist and and leader of a trio, uh-huh. um, who'd played for presidents, yeah, and, and had a tour in the South. All right, and the Green Book is where they could say stay safely. Yes. Wow. That's a. It was great. Great movie. I, I just. I loved it. It. I sat there in in a huge theater. Um, it was playing at the egg, the Elgin Theater uh-huh. in Toronto, which is generally where people go. You know, thousand or so people go to see theater. Yep. Um, and it was another one of those experiences. It was the. It was the premiere. It was the world premiere of the yeah. film, and we knew we'd seen something special. Uh, everybody could feel it. Everybody could feel uh, it. I'm getting choked up just hearing about it. <laughs> like the the that that moment in movies so, where so, so it, yeah, and it's a movie yeah. that will appeal to everyone. It's yeah. not it's not a movie that looks down on its audience. It's not a nihilistic yeah. you know film. Right. It's a film about we can all be better. Right. We as long as we understand each other, as long as we can put our sort of bigoted ideas aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can we can we can find commonality and it, it's a great buddy movie. Oh, that's great! I'm looking forward to seeing it. So you, the you know the documentary that you did, and you have other stuff coming out now. Like I guess uh, moving towards what you're doing now, it seems to me that you were able to do with your career, you know, in a very financially lucrative way, sort of what what Corman set out to do in a way, but you somehow figured out you know how to do it. And and make a lot of money. Well, not well. Rogers made a lot more money than I have, but Roger was also risking his money, right? Because he because. But you popularize it, I guess, is what I'm, yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. And and do you feel like you have a, a a sort of a pulse on why these types of movies? Like, I I know you produced The Walking Dead, and did you have any idea going into that say that it was going to be uh, the cultural phenomenon that it became? No, no. I mean, back when we were starting it, Frank Darabont and I um, and Robert Kirkman, who created the comic book, basically said, we want to do well enough that we'll get a second season. Right. I mean, that was our bar. Right. So you don't have any, you're not sort of prescient, is is that the word where you're like, this is, you know. And and, and the other thing to remember is that it would not have been the success that it's become if it hadn't been for streaming. Right. Um, if it hadn't been for an opportunity to tell serialized stories, right, where you had to have seen the episode, the previous episode, and under other in order to understand what the characters are going through, uh-huh. because people could catch up on streaming. Right. So oh, AMC has that that you can do that there. You can do that. Plus, it um, it's on Netflix. Yeah. So people can catch up. The first seasons, every yeah. season goes to Netflix after it runs on AMC or simultaneously yes, after. after. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, right. So, so last so last season's available now, right. on Netflix. I, I I think I watched the first few, and then I I had to. No problem. <laughs> They're still out there. They the... are still out there. <laughs> Good. The out the, the zombies are out there. It just seems like there's a whole you know uh, fran- um, several franchises there, now. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it, it's it's it, what do you think that says about? Like when you deal with horror specifically, that's horror straight up, right? Yes. Yeah. What What do you think that says about where we are culturally, or in general, why is horror appealing? Well, I'm not a sociologist, but you know, you make the movies. But I think that I think that when people have the level of insecurity that we all have yeah. right now, right, about the state of the world, right, you know. Economic collapse could be any moment. Um, we're natural disasters. Yeah, I mean, you name it. Right. Um, Why not just take it over the top and have the dead live? Yes, and right. that way people can experience this. You know, anxiety and fear. And then, and, and then it's done, and it's unlikely that the zombie apocalypse is going to happen. Yeah. But you know, your favorite characters have survived to live another day. Hope. And and and. There's hope, and the interesting thing about it is that the Centers for Disease Control came to us and said, listen, we can't get people who are facing an outbreak of SARS or, you know, a hurricane to come on our website and find out what they should do to prepare. Um, and uh, can we can we do a can we do a, a how to prepare for a zombie apocalypse? We said, sure. Yeah. And then it they had such an enormous response that it crashed their website because people would go on to the CDC website in order to learn how to prepare for a zombie apocalypse. And then see the real stuff. And because the truth is preparing for a zombie apocalypse is very much like preparing for any kind of disaster that you might face. Right. Um, because people are contagious. Right. And, you know, you need to stock up on supplies and so all So they just that. route them in yes. that direction. Yeah. Oh, it's genius. And it worked out. It did. So a lot more people are prepared for the zombie apocalypse now. And they're prepared and for SARS any kind and... <laughs> of disaster that might befall them. Really? Mm-hmm. That's amazing that they, that, that, that they saw that window to promote. Uh, yeah. and it, it, does that make you feel good? Yeah, because the, the, <laughs> yeah. the truth is that whatever it takes to make someone um, safer to protect yeah. their families and, um, you know, and, and, and not be caught unaware yeah it's good you know that's a that's a good thing and and that's something that wouldn't have happened without the walking dead becoming a huge pop culture hit the other two things like in dealing with this new the new media landscape so you you like you become obviously very savvy at that and it offers a lot more opportunity i would imagine right and i've got a a show that's in its second season lore lore yeah on amazon started as a podcast it did. That's encouraging. So there you go. Yeah. Yes. Where's my show? I know. I had it already. It came in. Well, one. now you're yeah. you got a huge acting career. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going okay. I'm doing all right. Not bad. Thank you. Uh, so how did uh, how did lore happen? Uh, well, actually, I my company was approached by Propagate, which is uh, Ben Silverman and Howard Owens' company. They said that they had they were optioning the rights to the podcast, which we had listened to. And it's like a radio show, right? It it is it is literally uh, lore examines folklore yeah. and mythology yeah. and tells the true stories upon which those based. are based. Oh wow, yeah. And um, 
You must have been like, of I course. love that. I right. mean, because yeah. what I what I do when I am not producing, yeah. is I read nonfiction. Yeah, that is my favorite thing. Yeah, I love historical yeah. nonfiction. Yeah. I mean, I cannot get enough of it. Learn, if you, yeah. So, um, so the fact that these were the the true stories, and, and most of them I had never heard of. A few I had, um, but to be able to explore those on, you know, on Amazon, yeah, and. You know, and be able to do an anthology series. Yeah. It's something that I'd always wanted to do. And it's a perfect opportunity. Sure. So so Aaron Mankey, who created the podcast, has been very involved. And the first year we work with Glenn Morgan, who is um, who is on X-Files. Yep. And then this season, the showrunner has been Sean Crouch, um, who came from Exorcist. Mm. From so, the movie? No, Exorcist, there was a TV series. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. Highly, very highly regarded critically. So these guys, like X-Files and Exorcist, I, I imagine you hire those guys because they understand to that tonal build of these type of stories. And they understand they understand the audience, They and they, they have respect, yeah. <laughs> unlike some people. No, I do. Uh, I do okay, for, for, for the genre. Yeah. And... Uh, and the, you know there there are there are lessons in each one, and, yeah. and I love the fact that I I'm discovering things that I didn't know. Also, the movie Hellfest, yeah, Hellfest. So, this is like a Corman movie. It, it's like a Corman movie, but it's also inspired by the experience of turning The Walking Dead yeah. into a maze. It's the the Walking Dead maze is um, at Universal Horror Nights. Right. There's also actually one at Thorpe Park in England. Yeah. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just something in the U.S. Right. And like Universal theme parks, these are theme parks to show. Yeah. I mean, and and, yeah. and uh, obviously there's one at Magic Mountain. They, they right. got our yeah. maze this this year. Yeah. They've got a Hellfest maze. You know, there's not Scary Farm. It's not, it hasn't even come out yet. No. And you've got a maze already. Yes, of course. <laughs> and uh, so, so you know, the the idea that one of these people in a mask, yeah, at one of these, yeah. at one of these. You know, scary Great. theme parks yeah. could actually be out to get you. Right, it's, was the was the the perfect. Yeah, I, I'm idea. Surp- how has that not been done? I know. Well, <laughs> I don't think the theme parks existed before. Like, you always had the guy in the mask, but he was just in the town. Yes. And now that these things exist, they're relatively new. They are relatively new. Yeah, but I just thought it was interesting that that uh, you know I don't I don't mean to lean on Corman, but this seems like uh, a movie like it could have been a B movie at a different time. Absolutely. You know, like there's, it, n- I, I love B movies. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, they're raw, they're interesting. They, you know, there's room for uh, weirdness. Yep. Yeah, and and it, and and the director Greg Plotkin was yeah. actually the editor of Get Out. So, so he, that's you know, a he wild come, movie. Exactly. So yeah. he comes from. He comes from. I mean, you know, yeah. he's got great. He's got great elevated genre cred. Yeah, the, uh, horror. Like I, 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 and I'm not being condescending to horror fans or sci-fi heads. I just have. I, I, it was just a specific movie issue. I understand. I mean, but you know, honestly, mm-hmm. one of the, the most relevant films that if you go back and you look at today, which I'm sure other people have mentioned, is Night of the Living Dead. Oh yeah, well, I like that stuff. Great. Yeah, I'm not. I got no problem with horror. Yeah, it's, it's, it, the problem is that that you know is that everyone's jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. And a lot of people who don't respect it, don't like it, yeah. think there's an easy buck to be made. Right. Oh. And that doesn't mean that we'll, you know, that all of us who do care and, you know, love the genre yeah. will hit 
hit you know a home run every time. Right. But at least we respect it. And we respect the fans. Yeah, and I, I'm a Dawn of the Dead guy. I like that. Yes, I like absolutely. That one. I actually like it more than Night of the Living Dead. Uh, the shopping mall sequence uh, it, in Dawn yes. of the Dead is one of the best things, and also the the redneck sequence with the. Yep. Guy. <laughs> Because I like elements of satire, and there there is a lot of that in horror and in sci-fi, just not so much I think in Marvel movies. Well, I you know the, the everything is to me is on a scale. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, you know, and I and I think that a couple of the Captain Americas have had great commentary. About, I got to watch them. I yeah. got to watch them. I just, I got called out today on an email saying, "Look, if you're going to do this." You better watch all the movies. <laughs> and then I got cast in a small part in the new Joker, so I'm getting a lot of shit. I'm well, getting, there you go. I'm but you know what? You can you can turn it around. I, I'm I'm going to have to. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but on another level, like, why wouldn't I do a scene with Joaquin and Robert De Niro in any movie? But I'm still like, they're still on me about it, so I'm going to have to make peace yep, with them. You will. Yeah. And it's great talking to you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Or thanks for having me. Nice having you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. There you go. <laughs> That's it. That's a journey, right? Uh, Hellfest opens tomorrow. Walking Dead returns October 7th. And Lore Season 2 premieres October 19th. Okay, no guitar playing. Happy birthday to me. Thank you for all your input on my elbow problem. Holy shit. I'm falling apart, man. Old man bumps on my head, smash finger, tennis elbow, bad big toes. This is what this is this is what you work for, people. This is what you get if you live long enough. And it's just the beginning, I hope. Boomer lives!